0: I think it's safe to say, if we're honest, that most of us didn't notice it the first time we ever opened our Bible or read through the Bible. Once somebody told us, we we, we saw it and we began to see this truth, and that is that the whole of scriptural revelation centers around one person. Most of us didn't catch that the first time through. But once somebody said, you realize all of it is about one person, right? And you you said, you know, I've never noticed that before. And then perhaps the next time you read through the Bible, you said, you know, I'm beginning to notice this theme. And then the next time, it's more and more and more. In Genesis 3, we see that the seed, singular, of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent. Later on we hear of Abraham's seed through whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul tells us later in the New Testament that that wasn't a reference to all of Abraham's natural descendants. That was a reference to one singular person, one singular seed. David receives a promise that a king, singular, from his line would sit upon an eternal throne. Isaiah prophesies and he speaks of a singular child who would be born of a virgin. A singular son who would be given as the prince of peace. A servant, singular, who would be given as a covenant for the nations, who would bear the iniquity of us all, who would be crushed in death, who would be uh, raised for our justification, who would justify many and then would see the offspring. He would see the fruit of His work. And then when we come to the New Testament, Luke traces the line from Adam, Matthew Uh, from Abraham down to one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And then you read through the Gospels and this Jesus lives and He's crucified, He's raised from the dead, He ascends into the heavens and He's promised that someday He will return to judge the living and the dead. Paul tells us later on through the work of one man, that one man, Jews and Gentiles are being gathered into one body. Paul tells us that God's plan for all of eternity and all of human history is to unite all things in this one man, Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. All of it is being summed up in Him. That's the message of Scripture. It's only the life of The one life, the one death, and the one resurrection of the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings one salvation to all men. There's only one God and one mediator between God and men. The singular man, Christ Jesus. Now I think, hopefully none of that is news as if we had never heard that before. But coming out of that then, it only makes sense that the people who make up a congregation like ours, if we are all consistently moving toward that one man in our, in our thoughts, in our devotion, in our affections, in our adoration, in our lifestyle, if we're all gravitating toward one center point, then it only makes sense that we're actually going to also become closer to one another. If the outside ring of a circle is really far apart, but it's being drawn to one central point, eventually the furthest sides of that circle, the diameter, gets closer and closer and closer. The radius gets shorter and shorter. If we're all being conformed to Christ in our thinking, well then eventually we're going to become to be like-minded amongst ourselves. Yeah. I think that should be obvious. If we're all being conformed to Christ in our living then we're going to be similar to one another in the way that we conduct our lives. Amongst Christians, there should be unity. And that shouldn't be strange. Among those within the confines of a particular church, there must be, not just should be, there must be great unity. And it's our salvation, our God and Savior Jesus Christ and His Spirit within us that produces that unity. It's not humanism or philanthropy as, as Chris just said. It, it It's not joyful. It's not encouraging. It's not spiritually helpful and edifying to us just because we got in the same room together and we like to be around other people. A lot of people experience that all the time. It's good that we're together in the Lord. That's what makes this unlike anything else that anybody in the world knows. It's not humanism. It's not philanthropy. It's not the fact that we would all agree getting along with people is more enjoyable than arguing all the time everybody knows that but that's our unity goes beyond that it's it's by nature of what we are in Christ that leads to this reality we can't we can do no other we are we are gravitating towards one individual so we're going to be gravitating at least getting closer to one another we come together and so with that in mind, let me read 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In this verse, Paul is urging the saints in the church to unity. Now, likewise, the saints in every church should be aiming at Unity. And so we conclude, if we wanted to summarize up the doctrine, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. And if we want to open that, that doctrine up even further, if we want to make it more clear, we need to define that unity. What are we talking about here? And this is the definition that I'm using. This unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony flowing naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. Now, last Lord's Day, we proved, I hope, the first three parts of that. And now we have three more parts, but I want to just briefly review. We, we've had many people out. The unity that we're talking about is corporate. That is to say, it exists in the confines of a particular local church. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't find unity with others in other churches or our church with other churches or other believers all over the world. But what we're talking about here, what we have in mind is specifically that type of unity inside a local church. Some of the things that we would, that we would say that I'm going to say, if I applied that broadly to every Christian in the world, well, it would just be nearly impossible We're talking about a particular local church. And the things that are required within the confines of a local church actually go beyond what we might have with other brothers and sisters in other churches. We might say it's more strict. Remember the word there that's used for uh, united, that you be united was used for mending nets putting something back together in a state of usefulness. We'll think of the difference between a net that you would use to fish a goldfish out of a personal aquarium and a net that you would use to catch tuna fish in the ocean. One has to be a lot more closely knit together to catch smaller fish. That's the picture here. In a a congregation, there has to be a closer togetherness than we might expect or even see outside of a congregation. This corporate nature of unity also means all of the parts are involved. Every member of the body bears the burden of aiming at unity. Nobody gets to set out and say, well, y'all go after unity and I'll sit right here and whenever y'all get it, let me know and I'll hop in. No, everybody has to pursue this together. It's corporate. Secondly, this unity, I said, is a pursuit, which means in this age it, will, it only exists in the form of, of something we are seeking after or working towards. It's not to be thought of in terms of achievement, but in terms of aspiration. We will not have perfect, complete, absolute unity this side of eternity because we're all sinners. But it is a pursuit. The unity is in the pursuit. And thirdly, it's doctrinal. The unity in question is centered around the non-negotiable, objective truths of the Bible as they have been understood and articulated in the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church. Apart from non-negotiable, objective truth, we have no unity. We don't have a unity in the Lord if we cannot define who the Lord is. What does it mean to be in the Lord? That's doctrine. Those are objective, non-negotiable truths that we have to agree on. And no unity should ever be sought which compromises the truth, has to set aside something. Say, well, ignore what God's Word says and let's just get along instead. That's not what we want. That might mean we have to sit back down at the table and continue pursuing unity, but we never set aside the truth. So those are the first three. So we pick up with the fourth uh, staple of this unity. I'm trying to define it. The corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony which flows naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. So the fourth thing about this unity is that it is practical. It's practical. That means the unity in question holds practical godliness in every area of life as the standard for the people of God. Now when I say practical godliness, I'm talking about what we might refer to as moral holiness or righteousness. Righteousness of life, that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. This is a perspective toward life which requires us to bring every aspect of our life. You're thinking, well, I know some aspects that I don't need to bring. No, every aspect of life, line it all up and march it through, march it under the microscope of God's Word, examine every bit of it in light of what God's Word teaches, and then work to bring ourselves into conformity to the Word of God in all things. That's what I mean by practical godliness. And I say that this unity holds that that practical godliness is the standard of the people of God. Going back to this idea of unity, we have to keep in mind that Practical godliness is one of those things that we are pursuing. None of us can say, hey, just to let everybody know, I got here this morning and I, I achieved practical godliness on the way over here. There's no more work for me because I got it. No, no, we're, we're all on a process. We're all working towards it. And so I, I don't want anybody to hear me saying when we talk about unity that, that we are demanding a, a particular uh, standard or saying that there there are a requirement of a certain bar that someone has reached the unity is in that we are all admitting that there is a standard found in God's word and that we are all pursuing that standard together that's what we're that's what this unity is when i say it's practical To say that practical godliness in every area of life is the standard of unity is simply to assume that we all agree that Scripture does set forth a way of conduct and that we as members of this church have our sights fixed on that standard. Hopefully, there will be nobody in the church who says, I don't believe the Bible really addresses practical things. The doctrine, sure, there are many things to be believed, but practical, wow, that's... That's that's for, for another time and place. Now, hopefully we agree, the Bible does assume or set forth a way of conduct. To say it another way, there has to be an agreement among us that the Bible teaches us how to live. And we are all working to bring our lives into conformity to Scripture, not just in a general private demeanor of spirit. Yeah, I, I think that's good. That's uh, I'm, I'm on board. I believe it. I, but actually... Acting, ordering our lives according to Scripture. Let me give an example. Uh, let's talk about work or, label or labor, as a, a, for instance, work. I'm not saying with this type of practical unity that we should all merely agree that men should work and work is good. We should agree, but I'm not saying that's enough. Nor am I saying the other extreme would be All men have to have the same job or even the same kind of job. I'm not saying that. But somewhere in the middle, there has to be this understanding that we should all be in agreement that every man should work that we've been given six days to labor, that any man who, wouldn't, who will not work should be warned about that and perhaps even potentially brought under the, the examination and church discipline if, it, if the patterns continue. In other words, we believe certain things, but that actually begins to shape how we live and act and function in our lives. And hopefully that's not strange, that, that's not weird that we would say that. We don't have this attitude that says, well, he's just doing his thing and I'm doing my thing. No, the Bible sets a standard here that we're aiming after, we're striving for. That's just an example. The point is that we're united in our understanding that practical godliness in every area of life is the standard for the people of God. Practical unity. Now let me try to prove that I think we should aim for this. First, doctrine, which we talked about last week, doctrine leads to practice. This is the first line of of reasoning. Doctrine, that which is taught and believed, always shapes our practices, what we do. What you believe will change how you live, or you don't believe it. Doctrine always shapes practices. And for this, I'd go to uh, a well-known text. You don't have to turn there. Most of us might know it from memory. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. "...but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." What's he saying? "...that which God has revealed has been revealed for our doing, our practice." He doesn't say, and that which has been revealed has been revealed so that you can sit in motionless, silent agreement that it's true. You should sit in agreement that it's true but the thing that's revealed leads to action, doing what God has commanded. It's, it, it doesn't just stay in the realm of the, of the thought, or the, the, the assent of the mind or, or agreement to it. Or think of it this way. There is no so-called Christian system in which the adherents of that system are allowed to determine for themselves how they will conduct their lives as long as they just believe the same truths. In other words, there's no Christianity that says, well, just believe these things. But when it comes to how you live, every man for himself. Do your own thing. That's never been in existence. Christianity has never taught that the redeemed community is a group of people that, like sheep, all go to their own way. That's the lost who do that. That's a state of an unregenerate group of people that where everyone is doing their own thing. When God saves people, He begins to order their lives according to a particular standard. Teaching always leads to application or action. Others have said orthodoxy always leads to or produces orthopraxy. What you believe shapes what you do. And I think it's obvious that among the things that are taught in the Bible, doctrines, there are many of them that deal specifically with the actions of your life, how you live. Why is it that we often hear or maybe we even have to say this to people? The Bible is not just a, a book of do's and don'ts. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. Why do we have to say that? Because even people who have very little uh, familiarity with the Scriptures know that there are actually some do's and don'ts in the Bible. That's not all that it is, but for us to act like there are no do's and don'ts in Scripture, that's, I'm thinking, you're not reading the same book I'm reading. There are actually rules to follow, rules for living. And we know this. To press that point even further, take for example Psalm 119. We, we all know Psalm 119 deals with the psalmist's view of special revelation. But in reading that psalm, we don't get the impression that written revelation for the psalmist merely shaped his living, but he, or his thinking, but he just kept living however he wanted to live. The psalm begins, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who walk in the law of the Lord. That's that's a manner of conduct. That's how you live your life. Elsewhere, give me understanding, doctrine, that I may keep your law. Practice. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I have done what is just and right. He doesn't say I have believed, or I have confessed what is just and right. And he says, I'm doing it. I've done it. It's action, lifestyle, practice. Another well-known text is uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Many of these passages are so well-known, but if you just look at them from a slightly different angle, you say, wow. All that's contained in, in, in a single verse of Scripture, all Scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, doctrine, for reproof, Here's what you're doing wrong. For correction, here's what you need to be doing. And for training in righteousness. Here, let me help you to go about the way that you should be going. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture never stops at just believe this, just assent to this. Doctrine, if it's truly believed, always shapes our practices. This is the reason why I'm taking the time to open up this doctrine, I can stand here and say that we should pursue unity, obtaining and maintaining unity, blah, 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 blah. I could go on and on and on, and you could say, well, <laughs> what are you taught? What is unity? We don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. We're well, got to open it up, explain, open up, and bring the doctrine, hopefully, to a, a, a more clear presentation. Why would I do that? Why, why, why did men preach like this in the past? Because they knew, I know. If you become convinced that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among your primary and consistent labors as a church or church member, if you become convinced of that from the Word of God, my work is done. The application will follow necessarily. Why is that? Because you can't stop people from living according to what they truly believe. Truly believe. Doctrine always leads to practice. Now, one non-negotiable objective truth which must be believed to be a Christian, I would say, but especially to be a member of this church. Our confession puts it this way. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And elsewhere, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. In other words, the Bible is the sufficient, certain, and infallible Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God and as the Word of God, it gives us a rule of not just saving knowledge, not just saving faith, but obedience. The Bible is the Word of God on how we should live, what God requires of us. We believe that in the Bible, God has infallibly and st- all sufficiently revealed to us how we should conduct our lives in in very practical areas. The Bible addresses practical things, like the use of our time, whether that be time devoted to a particular task like work or worship, or whether that be what we call spare time. The Bible addresses it. The use of our thoughts, work ethic, finances... Exercise, parenting, child education, courtship and marriage, relationships between spouses, conception and childbearing, how to relate to your boss, the role of men, the role of women, the role of the government, the role of the church, the role of the family, what we put into our mouths, what goes into our ears, what we put before our eyes, what we put on our bodies, how we wear our hair, how we walk, how we talk, how we treat our animals. Did you know the Bible addresses all those things? It addresses those things. Now, we have to be careful. I, I didn't say what it says about those things. And, and there are men who go too far to begin to make up rules the Bible doesn't make. But for us to just say, well, the Bible, the Bible don't talk about that. Oh, yes, it does. It does. Here's the kicker. Whenever it addresses those kinds of things, it's always in the context of the assembly of God's people. Always. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. There, there, there was no idea in Old Testament Israel or in the New Testament church that there might be an individual or a family who just comes along and decides for themselves, apart from the revelation of God, how they would live and yet still call themselves a part of that community. It, it didn't work. The, 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 What was the big the big punishment under the old testament just short of death would be being cast out of the assembly that was the whole thing no you can't come here like that that's the thing it was understood for serving the same god hearing the same truth well that's going to lead to the same practical conduct in in the areas that are addressed in the new testament we read statements like this this is my rule in all the churches we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I desire that in every place the men should What's he saying? Paul's saying all the churches believe and do the same things. This is just what, this is Christianity. And how much more would that apply to particular congregations to whom Paul wrote? And that's even in matters where Paul's not talking strictly about what happens when the congregation gets together. When he writes to Timothy and says that a man should take care of his own household, well, that's, that's, that's a very practical matter. And that, it was understood that this is, this is how Christians act. This is how Christians live. Now, our minds, when we, we start talking about these types of things, our minds it typically immediately run to, well, what about the things that the Bible doesn't address? I'll, I'll respond to that first. How do you know that it's not addressed in the Bible? How do you know the Bible doesn't talk about that? I'll, I'll be the first one to say there's probably a lot more the Bible addresses that I don't know that it addresses than that those things that I do know that it addresses. It's a big book. It's a very thorough uh, revelation. It addresses a lot. So let's not be too quick to say I've scoured every page, every sentence, every line. I've, I've mastered the thing. It doesn't address it. How do you know that it doesn't address it? Are you certain that it doesn't address it? If the Bible did address that thing, what what are you thinking that that's going to look like? Maybe you have a standard for it being addressed that would be really unrealistic just based on the type of literature that we have in the Scriptures. Maybe it addresses it in a way that you hadn't considered before. Secondly, I would say, well, then, are there any biblical principles that might at least guide you in that? particular thing. Even, even if it's just an indirect addressing, this principle will help there. But then thirdly, if the Bible really doesn't address it or give any guiding principles, that's irrelevant. We're not talking about that stuff. So the fact that our minds immediately run to, what about the stuff the Bible doesn't address? Yeah, we're not talking about that. So well, let's just move along. Simple. But let's make sure that the Bible doesn't actually have anything to say. We believe that in the Bible, God has infallibly and sufficiently revealed to us how we should conduct our lives in practical areas of living. If we're aiming at unity in doctrine and teaching, there will of necessity be a movement toward practical application. My point is that the local church should be a place of of humility, a place of willingness to strive after unity as far as possible seeking to walk with one another in practical godliness as far as the Scriptures will take us. What what do we lose? What do any of us lose by bringing all of life into conformity to the Word of God? We lose nothing. We have our whole life to bring all of life into conformity to the Word of God. And and at the end of it, we'll say, I didn't have enough time and I didn't get far enough. But we won't say, I'm sorry that I wasted so much time being conformed to the Word of God. What do we lose if we do that together as a church? I think, again, the answer is obvious. We don't lose here. I think the problem is in our thinking, because we have the remnants of sin, we actually think we're losers. Well, I might lose... This thing that I have cherished for so long. This, this thing that I, I really just have so much fun doing. I'm going to have to give that up. We think we're losers. You're not, you're not a loser. So again, I say this unity is practical. Meaning that practical godliness in every area of life is the agreed upon standard for the people of God. The fifth staple of this unity is that this unity is harmonious. It's harmonious. Doctrinal and practical harmony. By that I mean. The unity in question, brace yourselves for this. Everybody braced. Get ready for this. The unity in question allows for differences to exist which will actually produce a more useful congregation. Now, think about harmony as we would apply it to music. What is harmony? Harmony, whether you're you're playing a guitar chord or hitting a chord on the piano or whether it's several people singing together. Harmony, I looked this up, harmony is when three or more notes are struck at the same time and rather than working against each other, they actually blend in such a way. God made music to work this way. They blend in such a way that when we hear them, even though we might be able to pick out distinct notes, we recognize they all go together and complement each other well. And they, what it does is it produces a deeper, wider, more vibrant sound than if you just struck one note. I can hit A G string, a G tab, or I can strum a G chord. The chord is deeper, broader, more vibrant because I brought other notes into it. That's harmony. And that's what I mean by this unity is harmonious. There are differences. We're not uniform, right? You don't have to work for unity if everything is uniform. If everybody's the same, you're not working for anything. Unity is just waking. We just woke up. There are differences. The differences will still be aligned with the teaching of God's Word. But what happens is we come together to form a deeper, wider, more vibrant community, assembly, congregation than there would be if we all just parroted one another and everybody acted the same, dressed the same, talked the same, lived the same. There are differences. To prove this, first, consider the Bible in its doctrine and practical application does allow for some differences. Romans 14, verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Difference. Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. In in this church, there were differences. And Paul doesn't say, listen guys, we can't have any differences. We're going to have to get on the same page. He says, no. One person believes this, One person believes this. And these areas of difference, however, the issues, I'm going to try to explain this. As I read through this this morning, I thought maybe this is not very clear at all. The issues were not issues of clear, distinguishing revelation. In other words, that which was being eaten or not eaten was not a matter which had been clearly set out in terms of prohibition or requirement. Like, for example, eating blood. They said, don't eat blood. But never was there a requirement, you must eat meat. Nor was there a prohibition, you may not eat meat. There were differences of of things. These were matters of revelation. More than likely, Jews and Gentiles working together the Jews had received revelation from God for centuries about what they should eat. So it was a matter of revelation, but it wasn't such a matter that said, you are required to eat this and not that. You are forbidden to eat this and not that. There was a liberty there of difference. The same goes with the observance of days. The, the reference here is not to the Sabbath, a clearly revealed commandment, but to those revealed uh, holy days given to the nation of Israel. They were not required to continue keeping them. They were at liberty to drop them. At the same time, they were not forbidden to continue on in, in some of them. That's what I mean by that. It wasn't a matter of, of revelation that was presented in the form of a prohibition or a requirement. Paul said, if if some people feel like they shouldn't eat certain things, then let their conscience deal with that. Let let them answer to their master. Now the issues there at stake in, in Romans 14 are more than we have time to cover. I just want you to see, the Bible does allow for differences as long as no one is going against clearly revealed matters and that everybody is seeking to stay within the confines of biblical revelation. In other words, there are differences, but we're all still agreed the Bible is our our rule where there's agreement there and we are seeking to come into conformity to with what to what the scriptures teach uh, i don't believe that the the variation in romans 14 where paul allows for differences i don't believe this is one of those where people say well because i'm so mature as a christian the lord has given me the liberty to dabble in wickedness and sin and i just believe it's a matter of liberty that's that's where people typically go right You point out something that's obviously evil and wicked. Well, I just believe Christians have liberty here. To enjoy and revel in the things that God hates, you have liberty to that? That's not what Romans 14 is talking about. That's nowhere near what he's saying. But there were differences within the the guardrails of revelation. Another argument or another important principle to keep in mind is that grace does not destroy or oppose nature. Grace opposes sin, but it doesn't oppose nature. In other words, saving grace does not allow us to fly or to breathe underwater. Saving grace does not make men into women or women into butterflies. You are still a human being. Your nature is still resides. Saving grace doesn't call, cause people to have a new favorite color or a new favorite food. Saving grace doesn't mean, well, we all now immediately appreciate the same kinds of music and the same... One person loves art, another person loves this or that. Those types of things will very often... You're just going to stay who you are within the confines of God's revelation. Again, I'm not talking about areas of sin. Grace doesn't destroy all that. So where there are multitudes of diversities amongst us, just because we're human beings, a lot of those are going to remain. If you like to wear nikes that's fine i'm not going to say hey listen at this church we're after a unity right we're wearing Reeboks around here i'm not going to say that right if you do you get what i'm saying like there are some things like that that they just stay and it's okay that they stay and you might look at somebody's preference and say i don't understand it at all i don't see what he sees in that what what is what's the deal just let it alone that's okay that's that's him but we remain our own person Absolute uniformity is not to be expected, nor is it even to be desired. Paul doesn't argue in 1 Corinthians that the personal preferences should be erased, that no one is allowed to just honestly say, look, I like the way Peter preaches better than the way Apollos preaches. Sorry, you can't have that opinion. We need you to sincerely, honestly believe. No, if you, what he says is that shouldn't be fracturing and splintering the congregation you should not be dividing up based on those things but to come along and say no everybody has to prefer the same thing you have to prefer and like all of the same things that's not what he's getting at people can have their preferences but they just can't be allowed to splinter the church the cult up the road they believe that grace makes all of the men have the same hairdo and, and you know cuff their pants the same and wear the same kind of like. that's, that's not what we're after that's weird that's not biblical. That's not grace. It's not natural. Grace does not destroy nature. We will maintain many of our differences. And so when it comes to unity, understanding that there will be many diversities among us means that there will be differences in the way that we arrive at and apply some of the teachings of the Bible where there, are, where there is room for difference. Again, I'm not dealing with non-negotiable, objective truth. You can't say, well, I just believe that we're at liberty to believe there are three gods. No, that's, that's off the table. Where the Scriptures give that liberty. We're not dealing with clearly revealed moral statutes and principles. You're not at liberty to believe that it might be okay for you to murder, but for other people, if their conscience is bound, maybe they shouldn't do that. No, that's clearly revealed. It's objective. There's no dispute there. We're talking about matters that might not be as clearly revealed or the revelation itself allows for differences. When you read it, some people only eat vegetables, some people only eat meat. I've got the revelation here. The revelation allows for the difference. Where these differences exist, they must be held humbly with a ready willingness to set aside our preferences for the sake of others. Romans 14:4 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. 14:19 So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 15, 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There are weak brothers. There are strong brothers. And there will be differences. I don't think when you read Romans 14 that Paul would would say or that he's implying that those who are weak in the faith should just stay that way and never grow. I don't think he's saying that either. They're weaker for a time. Tend to them. Be kind to them. Pursue what makes for peace. Even where we might differ, hopefully we wouldn't be opposed to just the ongoing conversation, which helps all of us grow closer and closer to the teaching and application of Scripture. Hey, I know you, you, I heard you say you believe this. That's not the way I see it. Help me understand what, what you're seeing here. Explain this to me. By the end of the conversation, you might say, you were right and I was wrong. Humbly held. But there there will be differences. And differences which do not disrupt church practice or doctrine, rightly received, will lead to a more useful congregation. Remember, we're trying to restore things to usefulness. Having a healthy, humble, biblical diversity among us produces a harmonious church, a congregation that will be useful, helpful, inviting To all types and kinds of people. Now, I know that in our culture, words like diversity have pretty much been robbed and and abused to the point where we kind of feel icky saying it, right? Diversity. I don't know any other way to put it except we're not all going to be the same. There are going to be differences within the confines of God's Word, and we have to be able to hold those humbly. And it'll be amazing when somebody comes in who might not be exactly like me. They don't turn around and walk out and they say, that guy's weird. No, I'll would, I would gladly let them gravitate towards somebody else that might have some of the same interests or, or some other personal quirk that meets them. You know, a congregation provides that for people. Again, the gospel, non-negotiable truth remains central. God's Word, while surely addressing practical issues, also leaves room for some diversity on some issues. Where these differences occur, we must hold them humbly and never allow them to become self identification markers which section us off from the rest of the church. Now, how do we juggle all of these things? Because we've got, maybe you're feeling a little bit of tension here. There are objective, non negotiable doctrines, there are clearly revealed practical rules for living. Doctrine always leads to practice, and yet there are room for differences, or there is room for differences and differences are to be managed with humility, well, how how is all this even going to work? That comes to the the sixth and final point with regard to this unity, and that that deals with the source of this unity. The only way any of this is going to work is if this right here is at the bedrock. The unity in question only grows in one soil, and that is a heart made alive by the Holy Spirit Convinced by the Holy Scriptures and always growing in holy love for the brothers and sisters in this church. It won't work any other way. Paul refers to this unity in Ephesians 4.3 as the unity of the Spirit. And I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. A unity formed by the Spirit of God bringing us together. It's bonded by the Spirit of God like glue between us. It's the Holy Spirit of God in each of us as the living, animating principle of our souls which brings this union about. Why? Because He unites all of us to Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who are here and you're a, a Christian in name only or maybe you don't even profess it, but you're here. You're not a Christian. You have no spiritual life. You can pretend a kind of unity or or even maintain a superficial unity for a time, but your heart will never be truly knit together with the hearts of God's people because only the Holy Spirit can do this and you don't know the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, everything that I've said, everything that I'm trying to advertise from God's Word... It's not appealing to you. It's a waste of time. It's silly to you. Why would I give so much effort to being united to these people here when I've got a lot of friends out here that that need my time and my thoughts? Unless you turn to Christ in faith, you will someday be separated from the people of God forever. And you'll never ever again hear another invitation to come and be united to the holy nation, which is the church of Jesus Christ. You'll never hear that. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. And for those of us who are believers, we still have to make a concerted effort to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to put to death those fleshly impulses in you that, that come to the surface and remind you that it would it, it's so much simpler if we just had this good morning and y'all have a good week on the Lord's day. Like that's way easier. Just do that. Good morning. Y'all have a good week. There I did it. Whew. You made it through the day. That's a lot easier. And our flesh will remind us of that. Man, it wouldn't be so much easier if we just ignored differences, didn't strive for unity, said my good morning, said my y'all have a good week, and went on. That is much easier. But the Holy Spirit must be the strength. Even for those of us who are believers, He is our strength. It's made possible by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings this unity into our experience through the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God which produces this union. Because it's the Spirit of God who teaches us using the singular Word. It's the Spirit of God who will convict us of our sins using the Word, singular. Singular. The Spirit of God brings us along, all of us, sanctifies us, as we give our attention to the study and application of God's Word. And that assumes that we're being taught, but also reproved and corrected and trained for righteousness. If if your interaction with the Word of God is is only to find a happy thought about God or a, a motivating saying for the day... That might get you about 15 minutes through the day, but that's not going to change your life. At some point, you have to read a story in the Bible and say, that is a sin. Where do I, where do I stand with that? Well, how do I measure up? You've got to reckon with it. Remember, turn the mirror back on you. What does it say? I need to change. If we walk away from all of our dealings with the Word of God and we, we, we've not even considered our own sin, or our own sanctification, you're not dealing with it in its fullest uh, Usefulness. This is assuming we're all coming the Word of God, yes, devotionally, yes, to learn and be taught doctrine, but honestly evaluating ourselves. We come to certain passages of Scripture. There are texts that maybe you typically just read over very quickly and say, I know there's a good thing about God coming up. I just got to get to that point and I'll remember that point at the end. God is merciful and encouraging and He'll carry me through the day ignoring the, the previous seven verses that told you about all of your sins. That's, that's typically how people deal with the Scriptures. Well, you're not going to be changed. You're not being sanctified. Then there's going to be no unity if, if all of us are that way. At the same time, the pursuit of unity itself is only going to happen if we who are born of the Spirit are convinced by the Word of God that we should pursue it. If you're, if you're here, and we're going to continue, but if you're here and you, up until this point you say, I, I'm not buying this. Three sermons on one verse? This is a little overkill, isn't it? I'm I'm not convinced. Well, then this is not going to work for you. Rocky ground hearers will not endure. You might hear this today say, hey, absolutely, yes. Unity, yes. As soon as the service is over, you're going to hold the door for everybody. You're going to let everybody get their food first. You're going to pick up their plates. You're going to be like, yes, I'm pursuing unity. I'm doing this. You're going to go home, take a nap, wake up cranky, come back tonight, and you say, I don't like any of these people. It won't work because there's no root in you. You must be convinced by the Word of God that this is what we must do. Only that will carry you through even even the the, the slightest conflict with other people. You must be convinced. That's why I'm going to keep preaching on it because I want you to see, we haven't even got to the, the breadth of this in the New Testament, but I want you to feel the weight of it. This is not a small thing as we'll see, hopefully, getting ahead of myself, Ephesians, Paul says... I urge you to walk, or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Man, what a massive statement. What does he say immediately after that? He talks about how you have to treat other people in the church. Here's how you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Treat other people this way. It's, it's huge. You have to be convinced of that. But there's also holy love. Love born in us by the same, that same Spirit. The love of God manifested in us and among us for one another. If we're not growing in our love for one another, our pursuit won't last. We might make it two or three weeks, but somebody's going to make you upset. You're going to run into a hard place. It has to be from love for one another in addition to obedience to God. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hopefully in the weeks to come, we'll look at some passage that give form and structure to that love. Again, I don't want this to be gushy gushy let's all get along and be nice to each other. I want us to be convinced that, there is a, that there's, there's form and body and life to the love that God requires amongst His people. So that's the source. The life-giving Spirit of God using the Word of God to stir us up in holy love for one another. And when that is happening the life of God, using the Word of God to stir up in us, the love of God for one another, the natural byproduct is just a willingness to strive for unity. You don't wake up the next day united. You wake up the next day willing to work toward unity. So that's why I say that unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony flowing naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. And I believe that obtaining and maintaining this unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. It requires all of us. It requires work. It requires doctrinal fidelity. It requires practical godliness. It aims at harmony. And it will only happen among those who have been born of the Spirit, convinced by the Word, and who are growing in love. And I think it's safe to say that nothing less than this will meet the standards for which the Son of God laid down His life. Nothing less than this, maybe far more. To say, I'm a Christian, but then remain unwilling to give yourself to this pursuit, I think is utterly incompatible. It's not Christian to live in that way. Because ultimately, it's an infraction against Christ's command in John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. So may God give us insight, help us to be honest with ourselves, and grace to pursue this together. In Matthew's Gospel, we read these words. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So again, as we come to the Lord's table, we see the bread broken to symbolize Christ's body broken for us. I want to return to a passage that was mentioned earlier. In John chapter 2, Christ referred to His body as the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And some have said that in, in those three days not only was His physical body raised, but in the resurrection the cornerstone of the church was laid, that He began to build the new temple, which is His mystical body, the church. We then trace that back at the Lord's Supper, we are remembering His death, the giving of His body, His physical body given, broken, so that it could be laid in the ground for us as we, as we begin, Christ did this for us so that we could have salvation, reconciliation with God, union with Him through His Spirit, but also, just very practically, a church family, a place to worship gifts given that we could be edified by. There is also a warning that comes whenever we come to the Lord's table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone... For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We must look beyond the elements to Christ, His body broken, His blood shed for us. Therein lies our only hope, our only salvation. Some take this time as the elements are passed to confess some sins, sins that the Lord might bring to your mind. Move quickly to the cross and revel in what Christ has done for us. Christ for us. Should be our plea.